Welcome to Grief Recovery Now podcast. I'm your host, Charlene Gorzella, your grief recovery specialist. This podcast is being produced just for you, someone who has been challenged and heartbroken over a significant and devastating loss, death, divorce, sudden life change, or the many other ways we experience grief. You will be taken on a conversational journey with me and some special guests who have come out the other side of grief and committed to small, powerful, and courageous steps that made all the difference in their lives for the better. I want to instill in you on what is possible, that joy, hope, peace, and happiness is closer than you think. While your life is forever changed, you can have a beautiful new outlook on your relationships and loss with a sense of completion that goes deep in your soul. Ready, set, now. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. This is Charlene Gorzella, your host, as you know, for Grief Recovery Now podcast. So happy you're here today. I was thinking about all of you today, Grief Recovery Now listeners, about where everybody is when they're listening to this podcast. I just want to welcome you. You, who's like has their headsets on and walking the beach, walking in their neighborhood and listening to it, just wanting to, you know, hear a podcast. Maybe you're sad about somebody. Maybe there's a loss. Maybe you're like affected by so much news that is going on, loss, disaster, sudden changes, whatever's going on with you. Maybe you're on your couch. Maybe you're listening to it with someone. You're in extreme grief, a little bit of grief. Not feeling, you know, you're feeling not quite in sorts. You are so welcome here. Or you're just feeling great. I have friends who listen to all the podcasts, which shocks me. And they go, oh, I missed this last one. I'll get to it this week. I'm like, really? And I'm just so happy that it's touching a lot of different people. But this is for you. So sit back, relax. We have a great guest today, Patrick P. Long, who is awesome. And I get so lucky to have the privilege of inviting great people on the podcast and they say yes. So that even surprises me more. Not really, not recently. At first it was a little challenging asking people would they be interested in it, but wow, I am just so happy that there's so much interest in it, especially now. And as many of you know, who are listening to Grief Recovery Now podcast, I always have my little thoughts for today. It's sort of like an off the cuff, but not. Usually beforehand, I do a meditation, take a bath, do something to get ready for all of you. And what I was thinking about today is how I wake up in the morning and what I've been doing recently. I have been getting up, getting on my phone, checking my Facebook, checking my Instagram, watching my Google, you know, reading my Google news. And especially on Facebook, they have, this is what I get as soon as I wake up in the morning. I get dogs, animals, cats that need help that are suffering. I hear about Afghanistan that is happening right now. That is tragic in so many ways for 20 years, whatever you think about all that. There is loss going on and trauma. And I think about laws that are being passed and the floods and all that stuff is going on. And I deal in grief recovery. As you know, I'm a grief recovery specialist. And grief is a natural way feeling for loss. It's also grief comes up when we have sudden changes in our life. I can tell you when I'm looking at Facebook, when I'm looking at Instagram, when I am reading the news, Google News or whatever I choose to read, 
I get bombarded with at least 10 to 20 things about tragedies. And then I go about my day, right? Do you think unconsciously something may be happening within me? Yes. And I'm wondering why I may feel out of sorts if I don't right-size my thinking and go into my heart about it. Or if I get unresolved, all of a sudden it's all in me and I have no release, no resolve, no completeness. And so what I decided to do, I was talking to my boyfriend who was out of town with some bandmates, right? They had a show and they were talking about social media. And one of his friends said, this is what would help with not reading, you know, immediately when you get up, social media, go outside, look at the sun, look at nature. I don't care if you live in a city on the 20th floor on a garden apartment, whatever it is, just go outside. I don't care if it's snowing, raining, sleeting, sunny, the best day ever out. Just go outside and just look around and just look at some nature. Look at the bigger picture of life. Look at, you know, and just be with yourself for a moment after your night of slumber. I don't care if you had a good night's sleep, a restless night's sleep or whatever, or worry, stress and strife. Just take a moment to just be and clear out. I know in our society, I know myself, I get distracted. And I also wonder why with all of the stuff that's coming at me and that I'm reading that I'm allowing in my consciousness, I have a responsibility to myself and my day and people I'm responsible for, and especially to myself, how can I get, as I said, I don't mean about relief from it because that's okay. There have We have a thing here called short-term energy relieving behaviors, and it's, we call it STIRBS. And I know this may sound like STIRBS, but go outside and look at nature. Go and um, say a prayer. If you're religious, non-religious, spiritual, non-spiritual, nature person, whatever you believe in, just send good energy, send blessings, maybe even donate to the cause. I don't care if it's five bucks. I don't care if it's a hundred or a thousand dollars. See where you can be of service to somebody to sort of be in the act and the energy of contribution. Because I feel powerless when I read all this stuff. I'm on Facebook putting right away. I don't even put smileys or hearts underneath the Facebook posts. I'm putting little angry faces or I'm putting sad faces, crying on Facebook. Most people are on Facebook nowadays. I'm like, this is how I'm starting my day is clicking on sad faces or anger faces. I go, there's something not right here. Am I going to use my pure potentiality? And actualizing it through the day by having bad news every single day. So I'm going to take uh, my boyfriend's friend's suggestion. And I have done this a few times. Go outside. I throw the ball to my dog in the yard. Go do something. And, you know, we all have lives to live individually and collectively. I'm talking about the collective. If it's happening for me, it's happening to so many people. And I just got chills right now. So you know, a couple tips, go outside, be quiet. As soon as you wake up, even if it's to go get your good cup of coffee in the morning or whatever you do, take the coffee, go outside, just be single focused on the start of your day and doing for what's your highest good. Take a bath, whatever it is. Number two, do something, write about it. I'm sad today about this. What can I do 
Or how come I'm feeling so unresolved? It's because I'm powerless or whatever it is, because I feel powerless and I take it throughout my day and I feel powerless about other things in my life. How do you feel about that? Get Do a check. We're still walking around from our neck up. Let's go down to our hearts. Let's get in there. Even if it doesn't take long, take five minutes, one minute, whatever it is, send blessings, send good wishes, send loving light, write a little love letter to the world, whatever it is for you. And then there's other ways. If you want to do deeper work, as you know, I'm a grief recovery specialist and I'm here to serve you. And our guest today, Patrick P. Long, is someone who's here for you too. So I'm so looking forward to introducing you to Patrick P. Long. He is awesome. So let me tell you a little bit about him, and then we'll get on with our podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Okay. Patrick P. Long is a father and widower born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. While pursuing his lifelong ambition of being a writer, Patrick has earned his living as a systems engineer and database architect, which means he's a nerdy computer programmer. He said that, not me. (laughs) And I say it in the most highest light, Patrick. Patrick's wife, Melanie, passed from breast cancer in 2019. In the months following her passing, Patrick endeavored to follow his lifelong dream of being an author and delve deeper into the grieving process by writing a memoir of Melanie's final weeks and their lives and relationship. In addition to his dedication to writing and speaking, Patrick continuously seeks outlets to share stories of hope and inspiration to help cancer victims, caregivers, and anyone overcoming trauma and tragedy in their lives and relationships. Patrick is an active and avid supporter of the American Cancer Society and also Camp Kesem, a phenomenal camp and a child's friend through through and beyond a parent's cancer. So Patrick today is going to be sharing his experience, strength, and hope with us. So welcome, Patrick. So happy you're here today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I appreciate the opportunity and looking forward to the discussion. Oh, that's awesome. So are we. So am I. So Patrick, what we talk about is like what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Can you start about like in your book, the first few pages, you talk about walking through a grocery store And all of a sudden you get a call and you have that. But what happened before that? Can you talk a little bit about your life, your children, just just about a minute of that? Sure. Um, Yeah, I'll kind of go way back, but I'll make it quick. So like I grew up, you know, I kind of like a rough childhood in certain ways, not others, but kind of because of that, I grew up with an inferiority complex and it kind of hit rock bottom in my early 20s. And I really climbed back out of that, you know, and really, you know, went back to college, finished up, made some money myself, got a really great job, all this stuff. And then I met Melanie and then she was just, yeah, you know, I, part of the reason I, some of my childhood was rough and then what I went through is just, I grew up in a very kind of critical, you know, competitive environment where nothing was ever good enough and all this stuff. And she was like the opposite of that. She was that person who could make friends anywhere, anytime. It was just so much fun. Everything we did together was fun. We just had the time of our lives. You know, and as the years went on, we had kids and this and that. And I wanted to be a writer, but I kind of had to pay the bills and, you know, and life took over. So I'd actually written books before, but never had them published. And, you know, and then we went through a bunch of trials and tribulations after having kids. She got diagnosed with this other thing called Wegener's, which is an autoimmune disease. So we had had to battle through that and me losing a company. We had invested and lost my, this company at one point. So all these trials 
And then he's, as we're climbing out of those holes, then she gets diagnosed with cancer. And very quickly, they even talk about how big of a deal that was. Obviously, it's always a big deal. But that was her worst nightmare because her mom had died from breast cancer when she was only nine. So for the trauma of her getting diagnosed with that, that was like her worst fear of having that, especially now that she'd had kids and we had young kids. And, you know, then we battled that for, you know, the three and a half years. But that but that now I'm getting past the what was it like before. But, you know, as much as we had a lot of, you know, just obviously tough things to deal with and a lot of setbacks along the way, we always had fun. We were just that we we just looked on the bright side of life and we were every, everything we could. Melanie and I could go do anything together and just make it fun. Didn't matter what it was. And that was the great thing about our relationship and everything it was, it was just a very positive life, which was so different than what I'd grown up with that, you know, it's just, I absolutely loved it. I had a terrific time. That's beautiful. It sounds having a fun relationship. It sounds like an intention in your relationship, just the two of you in your polarities, right. childhoods and personality and stuff. Wow. Yeah. How do you think before we get on to what happened at that time, how, how did you walk through that at the beginning when you first heard and talk about a little bit about the grocery store or before that, if you'd like. Um, so from the diagnosis, I mean, it was just, you know, as much as she, you know, as much as it was just a gut punch and it was her worst fear, we were always pretty optimistic. And I think I was more so than she was, but just believing in modern medical care. And, you know, we we're at um, what's called the Seidman Cancer Center in St. Louis. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. That's where we're at. It's one of the best in the in the world. And you just always believe, you know, we're going to beat this thing. And, and after three and a half years, she'd been on and off chemo. She had a very aggressive form of cancer. So the whole three and a half years was just a continuous battle that kind of kept getting worse, even though, you know, still kind of remained optimistic, even though it did. And the problem was it had been spreading. Even while she was doing things like chemo and radiation and all this, the cancer still spread even while she was doing that, which shows you how aggressive it was, right? So... She it spread into her bones, and then it kind of spread where she had a. They identified a tumor in her in her um, liver, which was a, a really scary point. That was late in it, and then basically the book starts and picks up the story. Um, the last few weeks where she had a stroke, and that you were talking about me walking through the grocery store and getting a phone call. That's when she had. It was actually her second stroke, um, which we didn't really realize at the time because the first stroke was so minor, like we didn't, she really kind of didn't even know she had a stroke. But the second stroke was much more severe because she started, because of the tumor in her liver and her liver function, she started blood clotting a lot. And then that's a lot of the, what we were dealing with over the next few weeks is I'm trying to correct that, deal with it and, and things of that nature. How did you get through that? There's your experience with what your wife is experiencing and then you, as the partner, husband, who's witnessing his wife, partner, going through this. And then the second part is, how was it for you? How were you able to be there for her or not? I mean, was there ways you were there for you? You know, did you do anything that you regret today about, like through this grieving process, all that? And I know you get in yeah. the nitty gritty in the book, but... right. Well, yeah. And of course I did. I mean, everything you just said and everybody does, the difference is do you admit it? <laughs> That's one of the big things. I think the thing that resonates in my book with people is how much I admit, you know, I admit my own shortcomings, my own faults, ways I didn't support her, 
you know, negative thoughts, feelings I had, I share all that in detail. I mean, I think shocking detail. I think that's what, again, and some of that I was really scared to share because I thought I was going to make myself look like the biggest jerk in the world with some of it. And yet it's really what resonates the most with people. Cause I think everybody has that people love that someone's willing to admit it and share it because then they feel like I don't have to hide mine. Right. And that's what's so powerful about like shows like this and what you're doing. And that's why I salute you for doing this is because when we can get on and share those things, it's just so powerful, but you know, how I got through it, it's just a combination of, I think two, like two or three of the top things is just gratitude as much as things are bad. I just so thankful for the life I had with Melanie. I mean, that was even, that thought carried me even more after she passed, but it even carried me then because just knowing as much as this is bad, like we have a life so much better than other people do. We may not be rich. We may not be, you know, we look ordinary on paper, so to speak, but we had just such a phenomenal life and just appreciating that I had her, had her in my life and all those things. So I think, you know, just being grateful for what you do have and then just continuing to be optimistic, but at the same time, realistic. Like I didn't walk around kidding myself. I, I didn't expect her you know, things to end as fast as they did. We didn't. We thought she had at least a few more years and maybe longer than that. The end came very quickly once she started having strokes and that was unexpected. But um, just continuing to just believe that, you know, and, and just, again, be grateful for what you have and be realistic, but, you know, optimistic, but just continue to build on what you have instead of worrying about what you lost or what's not going well. Just appreciate this great life she had, the example she lived by of just having so much fun and being so great to other people that she made so many friends because she was that way. And just realizing, keep living that way because it it does, it makes you happier. You know, you can look at the world as a very competitive place and it is, but you can also see the good in people and realize there's a lot of great people out there who want to enjoy their life and have fun too. And it's not all just about, you know, greed, money and competitiveness and, and everything else like it's possible, you know, whatever you're going through, you always can make choices and choose to look at the better side and be constructive. And, you know, those combinations of things right there really are probably what pulled me through it all. That's wonderful. And there's time for extreme grief, the longing, the unresolved, the coulda, shoulda, woulda. I wish I said this. I wish I did that. Why did I do that? Now your book, because I didn't talk about your title of your book is Ordinarily Extraordinary, Ordinarily Extraordinary, Love and Anger, talk about that in the book, Life and Death and Hope and Inspiration. I love that. It was like what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Right. And that's so beautiful. So what compelled you? I know you're a writer. What do you think was in the back of you saying, I got to write this book? Well, yeah, I think I, I think being a writer is just my nature. It's like probably my greatest gift, you know, and I, like I said, I was very creative writing stuff when I was a kid that really impressed people. And uh, I actually won a national poetry con- competition. When I was in like seventh grade, which is actually a little funny because I should, probably shouldn't use that as an example, being a great writer, because there's actually a funny story behind that. But anyway, like I've been writing my whole life and I wrote my first book in 1997, And at the time, I'd actually really done no formal writing training, going to specific, you know, other than just classes you take in school. But I was a huge reader and I'd read everything under the sun. And even then, I was always kind of like a student reader. Like even when I was just reading the novel because I wanted to read it, I would really pay attention to what the writers do and how they're explaining this, how they turn that phrase, this phrase, you know. And so I was sort of studying writing even when I didn't realize I was studying writing. But in 97, I got inspired, just wrote my first book. 
and it really blew a lot of people away. And you can kind of tell when people are just being nice or like, oh yeah, that's good. Or they were like, people were kind of blown away by it. So I knew I had a gift. I knew I had a talent. So when Melanie passed, first of all, just, I think that nature of being a writer and wanting to express things and share them was like, but I think another huge driving force for me is our kids because we do have four young kids. At the time Melanie passed, our kids were only four, six, eight, and 12 years old. So very young still. And one of the things I'd watch Melanie struggle with, because I already mentioned her mom died of cancer when she was only nine. She had really struggled, especially in her later years of life, wanting to know more about her mom. And she would go back and ask some like family members and stuff about her mom. And like, it was funny how little information she could get. People just didn't share that much. You know, they'd, they'd tell her just a little bit of this or that. And she really wasn't learning that much about her. And she was disappointed. So I think another part for me, I think one of the very first driving forces of wanting to write the book was to share who we were with our kids. You know, I wanted them to know more about Melanie, what she was like. I wanted to know what she kind of went through. And me in the process, too. It's, actually, it's obviously it's my story. So I'm, I was leaving a lot behind for my kids, um, for about me, about her that they'd have forever. But as soon as I was writing, I realized it's not just for them. It is for them, but this is a story that can help a lot of people if I'm honest and I'm willing to get deep. And I shared some deep, dark secrets in this thing. I mean, I, I actually shared a couple of things about myself that I'd never told anyone in my life, like other than Melanie. Uh, she was about the only person who knew. And I, my my closest friend, guy friend from college, who's still a good friend of mine to this day, he actually came to me after he read the book. And he's like, how have you never told me that about you? <laughs> and it was kind of funny because he was almost like, kind of almost mad at me that I'd never told him that. And it's like, so it's funny because as much as I had these secrets, these things I never wanted to share anyway, and then I published them in a book for the entire world. <laughs> I never even like told my closest friends, but that was a big part of the motivation you asked about. Like I knew I wanted to leave it for my kids, but I also knew this can just be such a powerful story and help so many other people and just show them, you know, what you're going through when you deal with something like this and what it's really about. And like, and of course it's different for everyone. Mine's just one story, but for somebody to really share their story and, you know, as a writer, I feel I'm an artist and as an artist, you have to, you have to just get raw, real and, not hold back. And so, you know, my, I would, I did that. I went there <laughs> and it That's scared me to do it. I was really, I really, again, I mentioned this before. I, some of the things I shared, I thought almost might make me look like a jerk. And actually a few of the things I shared, I kind of deleted after I first wrote them. I'm like, no, nah, I can't tell people I thought that or did that. And then I thought, no, it's gotta be in there. And I put it back into the story. And, you know, even the, from the moment I was publishing, when I first hit the button to like put it on Amazon and publish it and put it out there, I was scared to do it. I'm like, am I really hitting this publish button? <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm crazy. How am I going to tell people this about myself? But again, as I mentioned, those things that scared me the most to share are the things that resonate the most with people. And they're so glad I shared and thanked me for sharing them. And I've got nothing but good feedback about it. That's wonderful. And I'm a big proponent of the peer-to-peer model. Well, we can have therapists and counselors and all that kind of stuff. It's like the peer-to-peer model. That discovery, grief cut in half, joys magnified, right? And we've got to experience our full grief, but we've got to identify it first. Sometimes, you know, like someone would read your book and go, oh my God, I did something like that too. I didn't even realize it. Or maybe they were unconscious about it, but they're like, oh, I'm going through that now. So that's beautiful. Now, and I know we want people to read the book. And at the same time, Patrick, can you share some of these little 
nugget, these experiences that you didn't want to share, I'll read it anyway, but please share some of this stuff. That's what this podcast is about. How do we really get in the heart and share this experience, strength and hope with each other? Just so they they don't know. I don't know if they're going to buy the book, but share some things that like made you cringe before you let go. And I've experienced that too. I'm in recovery and 12 step where I'd raise my hand at meetings. So afraid to say something, but I knew I had to be rigorously honest or I'd never get better. My heart would like feel like it's beating out of my chest, but I shared it anyway. And what happens like with you, people are like, after the meeting, they go, I'm so glad you shared that. I feel that way too. Or I did that too. And it wasn't just one person. So can you share, even though your heart will beat a little bit? (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because I, I don't mind sharing it. Oh, I did it in the book. It's just funny. Right. The author of me is like, I can't share because it it's like giving away the, the ending of the book kind of thing. But no, no, I can I can definitely share a couple of things without worrying about ruining the book for people. No, <laughs> but, uh, they won't at all. It'll be, make me want to read it more. Right. Just to touch on a couple of things. I already mentioned a couple of these things. I won't get into too much deal in the first couple. But, you know, like I said, I shared things about just childhood trauma and stuff growing up with an inferiority complex and kind of hitting rock bottom in my early twenties, just going nowhere in my life. And all that's embarrassing because nobody wants to be that way. Nobody, you know, and, and as a man, as a guy, I, I don't want to admit weakness because we men, especially I think have a trouble doing that. And I always have myself, but now I'm just more open to it. So I'm like, it's actually strength. It's not weakness, you know, and to overcome that is huge strength. And I would tell that to anybody. Now, I'm just not talking about myself. Anybody who does is so impressive. And then even as like when she was having the strokes and they're taking away their hospital, I really shared in depth some of the thoughts and feelings started going through my head. And I was a little embarrassed by that. So I'm like, I know everybody does it. And people probably know, but I'm sitting there thinking about her dying and what am I going to do? And, and then I'm mad at myself. And this is the stuff you go through when you're going through something like this. And it's so real to I felt like just a jerk because I'm being so selfish, just thinking about myself when I should be, when you feel like it should be all about her, all about them, right? She's the one going through cancer. She's the one having a stroke that's in a medical emergency. It should be all about her, but it's not. It is about you. And you're right there too. And this affects you. And you're, I had all these negative thoughts and feelings and I shared them in the book and I would never want to tell her I had those thoughts and feelings because it would just be like, why am I making it all about me? And I'm not worried about you. And And then I'm being negative about, is she going to die? Like all this stuff. And it's just, it's not pleasant. You don't want to admit it. You don't want to deal with it, but it's so true. And I want other people to know, like when you go through something like this and you're having those thoughts and you're feeling that way, you're not alone. It's not just you. You're not selfish. That's a natural, normal part of the process. Now to kind of jump forward and give you a little more detail. So probably a couple of years into her, she had a three and a half year battle of cancer and a couple of years into it, you know, I mean, (laughs) For We were married for ni- almost 19 years. She actually passed away about three weeks before what would have been our 19th wedding anniversary. We'd, by, with dating and stuff, we'd basically been together for about 22 years. But, it, you know, 15 years into our marriage, a couple years or more, a couple years after she got diagnosed, we got in this huge fight. We'd always had this issue of support you know, us supporting one another. And it was, it was a really interesting dynamic because I didn't, I literally learned this writing the book, thinking it through more and more that I didn't even realize at the time is just how complex that is. That word support is so much more complex than I ever realized. Cause there are so many ways you can support a person, right? It is not just one or two or three or four or five things. It's 80, 90, 800 things. I don't even know. And 
she had supported me so much because I, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I was a risk taker. I had started a business. We had poured basically our entire savings, every penny we had into this thing. So I really believed in it. And she agreed and let me do that. And, you know, put, you know, it's a huge risk to take and especially having kids and this and that, you know, and she was not a risk taker. So it was a big deal for her. But then after it ended, you know, within a year or two, I started getting these other ideas for stuff I wanted to start. And she was like, no way, we're not going through that again. And then I was mad at her and I would get mad and be like, well, you don't support me. And she would be like, how in the world do I not support you? I gave you all this time to go work on stuff, put all our money into it. And like, it was funny. And I feel, I felt almost dumb when I realized this later that I could never put my finger on it because I could never put my finger on what it was. She would ask me, well, tell me how it is I don't support you. And I really couldn't ask her. It's more like a feeling I had. And she sometimes- resentment? Would that, that be called a resentment? It was. I mean, I still have some resentment about it to this day, to be honest. You know, it fades over time, but it's still there and there's still some anger about it. And it goes both ways. It's not just me and her. It's I didn't support her in certain ways, too. And I realized that the key thing was the difference in me being such a risk taker and her being so risk averse. She really wanted to more live the safe life, have the nine to five job and the insurance, you know, which I didn't (laughs) as much care about. Um, But anyway, in the middle of this fight, we're screaming at each other and she says, tell me how I don't support you. And I said, well, you don't basically said it in a much different way, but I was yelling at her. I said, you know, you don't believe in me because if you believed in me, you'd be excited about what I'm doing. You don't get excited. You're more like stop doing it because you don't like the risk. You know, and when I said it to her, I was stunned. I like I almost didn't understand the words as they came out of my mouth. And I almost had to stop and think about them. And I'm like, that's it. And then it made me so angry. I had to like leave the house. I share this story in detail in the book. But I had to leave the house, go for a drive. <clears throat> and then you want to talk about some really deep, dark feelings, because I was questioning how in the world am I even in this relationship? Realizing that was so traumatic for me, because now looking back on it, I realized probably the number one thing I ever wanted in my life was someone to believe in me, <clears throat> you know, and someone to get excited about what I'm doing. And realizing she didn't just tore me up and so I'm sitting there thinking almost, why am I even in this marriage? It shouldn't be. <clears throat> and then I'm just in torment. I almost want to leave her. I'm so angry, but I can't. We have four kids and she has cancer. I will look like the biggest ass in the history of the world to leave my wife battling cancer with four kids. And I'm going, and this is all just flying through my head at hundred miles an hour and going on for a while, but it actually led to a realization then and and I got into some even deeper, darker thoughts than that, but that's the core of it. And it led to a realization of like how much like in one way I almost wanted to get away from her. But then by the time I calmed down, thought it through later, I kind of came around to realizing just how much I loved her, you know, and how much and I, I started realizing how much, you know, I I now absolutely hate the phrase you complete me. I hate that phrase. It sounds great in a romantic movie. It is the dumbest phrase ever because no one completes you, right? Like we had this issue with support. She couldn't complete me. I couldn't complete her, but that's okay. You don't need someone else to complete you. That's not their job. You know, it's not what they're there for. You know, I always tell people, like, if I'm having a discussion like this, I always say like, if you thought of this, and there's no exact number. If you thought of the six or eight things that you most want out of your relationship, you have a great relationship if you get like five out of eight. Like you're, no one's going to complete you. You're not going to get all eight. And if you believe you are, that's probably the kind of thing that leads to so many divorces because 
as soon as people get in and everything's not perfect, they like one out because they're like, oh, I'm not with the right person. You're never going to get everything. No one's ever going to complete you. I'm sorry. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, it's just real. I didn't support her in every way she needed to be supported. And I know I didn't. She didn't support me, but that's just differences. And that's those, those things can be worked out. But I think identifying them and learning how to live with them, because you're going to have something, whether it's that or something else, but neither one of us was right or wrong. She wasn't wrong for being risk averse and not, and I wasn't wrong for wanting to be an entrepreneur. It was just a difference in the two of us. And again, neither one of us was right or wrong, but we just had to learn how to balance that with everything else. But again, that goes back to what we were saying earlier about why I think we had such an extraordinary life because we still had a great time and had so much fun together. And, And one last point about that. I'm also glad I went through that at the point of time I did because I'd already gone through and realized just what a great friend she was to me and how much I loved her and how much she meant to me, which made all the rest of going through her cancer and her loss so much easier and better because I'd already dealt with those things. I hadn't dealt with everything, but I dealt with those things. So I kind of already knew how to handle so much more and I matured and grew so much. That's why it's so important to talk about our feelings, bring things out, not just let them stir inside you because the more I did that, the stronger of a person I became. And I became a much more mature, stronger person. When she did finally pass away, I was able to handle all that so much better. Yes, that's beautiful. Now, our listeners out there, Patrick, I mean, your story is going to help so many people. And I know it already has. I was wondering, what would you suggest to our listeners who may be going through something like this or in a relationship, long-term, short-term, because, you know, people lose spouses, people lose partners, sisters, brothers, or whatever. If you were to do a do-over, what would you do? Well, as far as a do-over for me, I mean, I could definitely- I know you're on this other side, but if if you were to say, hey, talk to one of your kids as he's about to get married or in significant relationships- what would you tell them? Like, what have you have learned and what could they do now? I, I've learned a b- bunch of lessons and I, I was actually writing some of this out for a while. So I, I really have it structured in my head and I, I, I could give you a bunch of lessons, but there's really the big three I look at. And the first is, I, I, like I said, I don't like the phrase you complete me. I, there's another thing I don't like. I don't like how people are always telling you to be positive. Because the things I went through, I realized you can't be positive all the time. And and it sets up a false expectation. A false expectation is going to destroy you. I would tell people to be constructive because you cannot feel positive. You can be in a place where you just lost your, like, I just lost my wife. And it was extremely just like a gut punch. It was devastating. I was in fear. Like, I wasn't going to feel positive, but I could still be constructive. I could still get up every day, feed the kids, get them off school, do things with them you know, just keep my life moving, even if I wasn't feeling positive. Like, to me, positive is more a result. It's not the thing you should focus on or try to be or do, because you just can't. Like, But you can always be constructive, right? So that's why I tell them, just keep being constructive. Things will work out. But if you be constructive enough and you keep doing that, it will lead to you being a more positive person. It'll lead to you being a stronger person, right? And that, that's more the result. A second big lesson I give people is reminders and reinforcements. And again, that's why a show like yours is so awesome. There's so many books out there. People like Jack Canfield, The Success Principles, or Tony Robbins, Brene Brown stuff. We could go on and name a ton of them, right? 
get those, read them. I, I, you know, I don't feel like I have a lot of time to sit there and read those books. Some of them are kind of long, but I get the audio books and I read them or, you know, I listen to them in my car. Like I'll drop the kids off at school and, you know, even if it's just five minutes a day, because the more you remind and reinforce yourself of all these things, the more they almost start becoming like a psychological muscle memory. Like you start realizing when you're thinking wrong or doing wrong, you start catching yourself quicker. You start course correcting better, you know, reminders and reinforcements, you know, don't look at self-help books as those goofy things that weird people read. Like, honestly, I almost used to think about that as a younger kid, but, but no, these are valuable tools and like inspirational quotes and just positive thoughts, you know, um, I have nothing against the word positive. I just don't think it's the focus, but you know, that what I'm saying, those kind of books that teach you to live life better and other people sharing their stories, stay in that world. Listen to podcasts that are good, constructive podcasts like this one, because the more you keep doing that every day, you know, we don't just learn a lesson once in life and we have it forever. We can revert back to old bad behaviors. We need reminders and reinforcements all the time. We need the right ones. So that's lesson two. The third lesson I'd say on top of all that is just understanding the power of choice. Everything is a choice. Everything. I mean, some people would immediately go, no, it's not. I mean, no, I didn't choose for my wife to pass away, right? I didn't. But you know what? I have every choice of how I handle it, how I look at it, and where I go from there. Sometimes the thoughts and feelings that overcome you, like I was talking about those negative thoughts and feelings, like when she started having a stroke or fighting, you can't control the thoughts and feelings that overcome you. Emotions are going to overpower you, but you can control what you do with them and what you learn from them, where you go from there. We cannot quit making choices. And the more we realize how much we're doing it and how much we can actually control our own choices, the more we take power over our own lives. Like right now, you or your listeners are deciding you're making a choice whether or not to agree with me on what I'm saying. And you might have your reasons for choosing, but you're still making the choice. You can choose to agree with these positive, constructive things. We can choose that, but but you still have to make a choice. You really have no choice. You probably make 10,000 choices a day, whether you realize it or not. But the more you learn, you have that power and you can control those choices. You know, again, even if you can't control the thing that happened to you, you can control what you learn from it and where you go from there. The more you're just taking control of your life, understanding, and every little choice matters. Again, like I, the first the first two lessons I gave, like reminders and reinforcements, that's a choice. You choose to do that every day or very often. You choose to go get that audio book and listen to the car or listen to that podcast. You choose, you know, to, to be constructive in your life. Those are all choices you're making all the time. So to keep making those good choices, probably the number one lesson to realize you have that power to control those choices really is probably the number one lesson I've ever learned in life. Those are three powerful tips. And you don't reminded me of, you can be powerful in powerless situations. Mm -hmm. Your wife, if you had the power, I'm sure you would create all kinds of different things, good health, being cured, all that stuff. But we're in life. We're living life on life's terms. And sometimes we refuse to live it. And that's why there's a lot of addiction and all kinds of things going on in the world. We avoid legitimate pain. And so we act out in weird ways where we're powerless over that. But what's great about you, you identified it. You you woke up to it, that you're not powerless over the things that happen to you. You have power of choice, power of next right action. And that is beautiful power to like write your feelings down, getting into your heart. I just love it. Again, everyone, we're at the end of our podcast and Patrick's book is Ordinarily Extraordinary. 
Love and Anger, Life and Death, Hope and Inspiration by Patrick P. Long. How did you get that title? This will be the last thing we'll talk about. And anything you want to talk about, like what's going on with you, any workshops or anything or any new books coming. So how did you get into Ordinarily Extraordinary Title? Yeah, it's kind of like a theme of the book. And it's kind of something I mentioned earlier in this show of, of just, you know, we on paper, we're so ordinary. We just, you know, we live in St. Louis in the suburbs in the Midwest, have a small, modest house. Like, you know, we moved in this house 20 years ago and it's really pretty small house. And I thought, you know, we might live here a few years at most and then move up to something bigger. But because of all the setbacks along the way, because of taking some risks and this and that happening, we never have moved from it. So if you looked at us on paper, we would just look like the most ordinary people, not rich, nothing super. Nice. I've never owned a new car in my life. I've always owned used cars. So there's nothing special, but at the same time, like I was saying earlier, just our attitude and everything living with Melanie these years, we had an extraordinary life. I don't think anybody's ever lived a better life. Not just because, you know, people might be wealthier, but I can't imagine anyone was happier than her and I were through the years. Like I said, we were the two people. We could just have fun. It didn't matter what we were doing. We could go almost anywhere, anytime around people we didn't know, whatever. We could just have a blast. We would just enjoy things for what they were and just, we'd be doing things that most people would think, oh, this is stupid. Why am I here? I got to get out of here. And we'd be just like, oh, this is fun. This is fun. Let's do this. You know, so like, and just also being grateful for what you do have as much as I can say, like, oh, yeah, my house is little and stuff, right? I don't sit there and say that, oh, it's sad that I have it. I think it's awesome. Would I like something bigger, you know, more bathrooms, whatever? Sure. But at the same time, I mean, what we have, I don't know if we appreciate in this country today. Like, I mean, we have refrigerator, freezer, air conditioner, heater, electricity, all these on-stream channels, the internet. I mean, most human beings who never lived have lived this well. Like we have, and now you see it with the, look what the people of Afghanistan are going through. They would kill to live where I live, like, and have what I have, you know? So I don't sit there and think, well, I'm not the rich guy. I think, man, my life is just awesome. So as much as we may look just ordinary, I appreciate my life for what it is. And I just think it's so extraordinary the life I've had. And even after losing Melanie, I still think that because a little phrase I use in my head all the time, I think of, and I'll say to people is, you know, it's not a tragedy that she died. It's, it would have been a tragedy if I never had her. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the extraordinary. So that that's where the title came from. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Anything else coming up for you before we sign off? Uh, as far as coming up, uh, we're doing a few different things. You know, you mentioned in the bio, I have a background in like software and database architecture. And, you know, I have a publishing company along with being an author and we identified some things in the industry that we could be doing better tools and software and stuff that we're working on. Um, and so I'm doing that also working on another book. So I kind of got a lot to do. <laughs> it's going to be a busy next year, but, uh, but you know, a lot of things going on and, but also just promoting the first book continuing more because it has gotten such great feedback. I just want to see it get into people's hands. Cause I think not only is it a book that can help people, but I think it's a book people love to read. I mean, people just tell me how much they liked, you know, they just page turner, just wanted to know what's going to happen next, didn't want it to end. You know, it's that kind of story you really enjoy reading. It's not just, it's not just a book of like lessons learned. It's, it's a, it's a good story that really compels people. That's beautiful. I see you with speaking at doing speaking (laughs) engagements. So anybody needs a speaker regarding this, any of our grief groups who are listening or just someone who wants a great story and um, something that we could all take away being even better people because of it. So Patrick, you're a 
such a beautiful light in the world. I'm so happy we got to meet. In your next book, let us know, because then we'll get you back in whenever that will be. And thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Again, thank you, too. It's like you're, This show is just awesome. You know, I've, I've listened to some of your other episodes, and it's so powerful, the stuff you're sharing on this podcast. So I encourage everyone to, if you haven't already, keep going back and listen to some of the other episodes and stay in touch with it, because you're doing great stuff here. Thank you. I mean, that is great. That just fills my heart. It makes me know that I'm doing the next right thing in this world. Also, anybody's listening, please, we're on all the podcast platforms. Please rate, review, and let us know what you think. Hope you like it. And we'll see you guys next week or next time. These come out every two weeks and we're all over the world now. I'm just so thrilled. And we get to listen to people like you and It's an honor, everybody. So glad you're listening today. Please spread the word. This is a movement of grief recovery. We're here for each other to remind each other. Patrick talked about that. We've talked about it. Let's remind each other of how good things can be, how challenging they can be, but it's not forever. Patrick, you listened to our Laura Jack, who talked about the Phoenix. Like, I see you as like a Phoenix. And so it can happen for you too, all you listeners out there. We'll talk to you later. Peace and love and harmony. See you next time. Thank you for joining our Grief Recovery Now journey. Like what you heard? It would be the biggest compliment to our mission if you would please subscribe, rate, and review Grief Recovery Now on Apple Podcasts. And we'll keep you posted on our next podcast. If you don't have Apple, we are also on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Also, please join our private Facebook group, Grief Recovery Now. And if you are in need of any personal attention, please contact me with the link on this podcast page, which is griefrecoverymethod.com forward slash GRMS forward slash Charlene dash Gorzella. It would be an honor to hear from you.